Amen. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. For those of you viewing online, welcome. We see you. You're very much a part of our gathering this morning. Well, hey, this morning, uh, we're going to finish off a series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And in this series, we've been learning that good questions lead to good decisions. We started off week one with the integrity question, which asks, am I being honest with myself, really? Week two, we asked the legacy question, what story do I want to tell? In week three, we asked the conscience question, is there a tension that deserves my attention? All of these questions are a framework when making decisions. Last week, we asked the maturity question. What is the wise thing to do? And this week, we're going to ask the relationship question. And I I think that this is the most important question out of all of them. But in order to do that, before we ask this question, we have to look at one of the words in this question. And that word is love. Now, anyone who knows me and has a conversation with me knows that I like to... um, climb the ladder of abstraction when having conversations. Uh, if, that, if, if, if moving up that ladder is, is asking the why questions in conversation and moving down that ladder is asking the how questions to the more concrete answers, if you've had a conversation with me, you'll know that I like to kind of exist up in the why, the highest rung being the abstract and the lowest rung being the concrete. Well, if you would give me a moment This morning, I'd like to climb that ladder of abstraction as we look at this word, love. And when I think of the word love, there's a dilemma, an an illustration that pops in my head every time I think about it. And that dilemma is something that I've called the cheeseburger problem. Now, whenever I use this illustration, I go back to my wife's later pregnancies where she would just be craving cheeseburgers, and it was the most beautiful thing ever, and it was like the big, juicy, loaded cheeseburgers. In fact, when I was preparing for the sermon, I turned to her the other day, and I was like, hon, which which pregnancy was it where you were craving cheeseburgers? She was like, all of them. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. But when I say the cheeseburger problem, I'm not talking about that dilemma. The cheeseburger problem asks a different question, and it's this. Why in one sentence... Can I say that I love a cheeseburger? And in another, say that I love my wife. Why is that? Why in one sentence can I use that word? It's the same word, right? Why in one sentence can I use that word love when I'm talking about a cheeseburger, and then in another sentence use it when I'm talking about my wife? Now, I get it. Like, that's a, that's a pretty out there illustration, and everybody in the room here, even as I say, even as I ask that question, like, you all know, like, I don't have this dilemma where I don't, I'm hanging a cheeseburger and my wife in the balance, right? I mean, everybody, it's understood. But hear me out as we climb that ladder of abstraction. I'm not really asking, how can I say those two things? Because we all know how I can say those two things. But the question worth asking is, is why? How do I use the word love? A lot of what we love in life is attached to how we feel, right? In that moment. We say we love a cheeseburger because of the way it tastes. 
We say we love watching a good sport match because of the way it excites us. A good movie because of the way it pulls at our heartstrings or because of the way that it makes our heart race. We love playoff football this time of year, right? Because of the intensity of what's at stake. How many pet owners do we have here? Right? We say we love our pets, but it's because of that companionship that, that we feel from them. And we may even love our jobs. Say we love our jobs because when we feel that sense of purpose and success. But what about What about those times when love really, really matters? What happens when the food isn't as, the burgers aren't as tasty? Or the events aren't as exciting? What what about when it comes down to things that really matter? What happens in our relationships and in our decisions, right? We're, We're filtering these questions in this series through relationships and through making decisions. And we learned a a few weeks ago how our our decisions always impact other people. What happens if we attach that same mindset of responding to things out of love because of how they make us feel when we attach it to things that really, really matter? If I love my wife because of the way she makes me feel, what happens when the honeymoon is over the butterflies aren't there? When the relationship gets difficult. If I love my kids because I'm proud of how they make me feel, either because of something they've done or just the, the fact of being able to say, like, those are, those are my sons. What happens when things get difficult and they grow older? They start making bad decisions. What about that one friend where everything's great until that one conversation? And it just goes awkward. See, if we're not careful and we love like we love a cheeseburger, it all remains too fluid, too subjective. And even worse, it keeps us at the center. As feelings change, as people change, as circumstances change, if we're not careful, our love or our lack thereof changes along with it. So that brings us to our fifth and final question of our decision-making grid and ask the question, what does love require of me? Our fifth and final question is, what does love require of me? We've been learning how good, good questions lead to good decisions, and like I said, I think this is the most important question of all. Thankfully, we have the Word of God, and we have the example of Christ. And now that we've sort of climbed that ladder of abstraction and asked these awkward questions and start to examine why we say the things we say or do the things that we do, we can climb down that ladder into, onto a more concrete footing. And at the base of it is the example of Jesus in the story that we read earlier. John 13. It says, Before the Passover festival... Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that right there we say that this this next portion of Scripture is all about love. And man, when I read those words, it's hard not to well up. When I read those words, he loved them to the end. Completely. 
So this sets the stage of an act of love. This is Christ's love. It says, now when it was supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to, de- to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel around him. So this is before the Last Supper. This is before the communion meal, the very the communion that we're going to celebrate and honor later on in this morning's gathering. And Jesus is teaching his disciples. And up until this point, Jesus has taught, had taught his disciples and the people around him using parables and stories. But here, in this example, in this example of love, Jesus chooses not to use an illustration or to tell the story of a master washing his servant's feet. Here we read that Jesus becomes the example. And there are a few things that we need to understand about foot washing to give context to this story. In the Middle East, people were wearing sandals, rope and leather sandals traveling around dusty roads, heat, your feet were the dirtiest part of your body. And it was custom that when you entered somebody's house, that you would have your feet washed upon arrival. This task of washing someone's feet was the lowest of lowest of low tasks. Some Jewish rabbis even believed that even Jews, whether servant or not, Jewish people should not wash someone else's feet. Feet were considered filthy, disgusting, and undignified. But here we see Jesus acting out in love, washing his disciples' feet. The first thing we notice in this is that it mentions Judas. The very disciple that was going to betray Jesus only hours later and, and basically hand over his arrest that would lead to his death was there. I mean, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. Here Jesus, in this act of love, washes his disciples' feet, and one of those disciples' feet, he knows one of those disciples is going to betray him. But his, his love doesn't pass by him, right? He would have washed Judas's feet. When we think of this example of love, to try and get an idea of what a, a Jesus type of love looks like, we're reminded that he loved Judas enough to wash his feet. And that begs us to ask the question in our lives, who are our Judases that we just can't seem to get to that point? that we would rather just pass by? Who is that person that as you think about loving others, you're thinking, clearly, it doesn't mean this person. Clearly, it doesn't mean this family member. Clearly, it doesn't mean this coworker. Before coming into full-time ministry, I was in retail for 15 years. 
And so you can imagine the opportunity that I had to love people that weren't being so loving to me. Bunch of Judases for sure. Some customers were just hard to love. But when it came down to business, there were just some people that, that you just hated dealing with and you'd have these repeating customers. But if Judas wasn't outside of Jesus' love, neither were those people. And to be honest with you, it was in those moments of relational, sometimes difficulty, that God began to fine-tune in me a heart for relationships and a heart for people, whether I was agreeing with them or not. And without those 15 years, I don't know if I would have been led into ministry. That was all part of the plan. And God uses those moments, but he calls us to love those people. Next, we see that, that he got up. Jesus, it says that Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Pouring water into the basin, started washing his disciples' feet. Jesus became the servant. In Jesus' example, like I said, he didn't use an illustration to teach this. But when he got up and he removed his outer clothing and he wrapped that towel around his waist, he would have looked like a servant. He took the role of a servant. He didn't just perform the task. So much, though, that it, it created an awkwardness within the room. Look at Peter's response in John 13, 6. It said, he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will, you will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. I remember reading once about this passage, just the cultural awkwardness that that would have created. Jesus' loving act of washing his disciples' feet would have been viewed at as, as almost embarrassing as Jesus humbled himself in this way. It was countercultural. It was borderline offensive to the people there. Ironically, we read in Luke's gospel that the disciples ahead of time had been fighting over who was the greatest among them. They had been fighting with each other. Who was the greatest disciple? Interestingly, too, is we, we read, at no point in this story does anyone wash Jesus' feet. None of the disciples do. They're too busy arguing about what their love is going to get them, what position their love for Jesus is going to get them. Sometimes I wonder in the midst of all the bickering and all of their dirty feet, right? Jesus washed their feet, so no one washed any of the disciples' feet as they came into the room. They're all bickering with their dirty feet about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, I want to show you something. I'm going to show you what love really looks like. He gets on his knees, and he washes his disciples' feet. They're thinking about status, concerned about what their love and devotion to Jesus was going to get to them. But here, Jesus is teaching us something that's really important for us to know as we consider this morning's question, and that's that a Jesus type of love 
redirects our focus from inward to outward, from me to you. All too often in our culture, when we use the word love and when we contextualize the word love, we're at the center of it because of how it makes us feel, because of how it may elevate us in our own lives. But what Jesus teaches is that his type of love redirects my focus from me to you. Jesus' love looks outward. Jesus' love is motivated by love. Look where it says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him everything into his hands and that he came from God and that he was going back to God. So then he was able to love this way. Love looking outward, love motivated by love. So as we think through our current situations and our current relationships and we ask this question, what does love require of me? We must also point our response outward towards others. Love requires us to redirect our focus from inward to outward. Jesus shows us that love isn't about us. Love is about others. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say that the world was so lovable that he gave Love came first. God so loved that he gave. A Jesus type of love is one that's willing to put betrayal aside, willing to put cultural awkwardness aside, and take on the form and the image of a servant for others. This was Jesus' example. This was it, and this was the, the, the pinnacle of what he was teaching his disciples in that moment. Love redirects our focus from me to you, from inward to outward. So are there areas in our lives where this focus is off? Are you in a relationship where you realize you're making decisions that are focused around yourself? Are you more tuned into what you can get or maybe what you feel like you deserve from someone more than what you can give them or how you can serve them? Are we asking what does love require of me in this moment? Younger people, are you caught up in the feeling of love or the picture that society paints? Are you thinking of that image of Christ washing his friend's feet, putting the other person first? Maybe at your job, are you stepping on or stepping over people for your own success instead of walking alongside them as an opportunity to show God's love to them? Husbands and wives, are you submitting to one another? 
Or is love conditional? Are you keeping track of past hurts? Are you holding it against one another? Are we making decisions that satisfy our own appetite and desires or even our own sense of entitlement? So we ask the question, what does love require of me? But if we just end there, then we're missing one of the most important pieces of Jesus' example. And that's one word, surrender. Before asking, what does love require of me? We should also be asking, am I willing to surrender? Am I willing to give up all of my own desires? Surrender was what Jesus lived. We read this verse as part of our series in Philippians called Hope Dealers. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And in it, we see that Jesus had every right and every power to stay right where he was instead of bear the weight of what it would take to to shift the hearts and forgive the hearts of humanity. But his love was shown through his willingness to humble himself and to surrender. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. You have to wonder if when Paul is, is, is writing this, if he's thinking of that imagery, of Jesus taking on that image of a servant, wrapping that towel around his waist, that humility, washing his friend's feet, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, humility and surrender by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. A type of love that's required of us can only be found through surrender. The type of love that's required of us is only empowered by surrender. It comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ and the, the power of his Holy Spirit in us. This is a countercultural type of love. This is a love that's going to create probably some awkwardness because it's just not going to make sense. Just like it didn't make sense for Jesus to drop to his knees and wash his friend's feet. It didn't make sense to them in the moment. But this Jesus type of love comes through surrender. When we release our own desires, even sometimes our own understanding, then we can be filled by a love that's greater than anything that this world can offer. And then we can be empowered and encouraged to love others in the same way. 
Jesus type of love requires surrender, a willingness to step into those awkward spaces, a willingness to forgive and not pass by those people that otherwise you may feel don't deserve love or maybe even feel like you can't show them love. Today on the Connect card, you'll see a box that says love. And we're going to follow that up with an email this week. And what I'm going to do in the email, what I'd like to do in the email is look at that First Corinthians passage that you hear read so many time, times at weddings where Paul writes what love is. And I remember being taught years ago just a useful tool within the context of that scripture that helps me evaluate my own heart, the own areas in, in my life where I need to love better. And that holds me accountable to them. So if you check off that box, then we're going to send you a follow-up email. And this is what I love about this passage. Kind of the, the capstone to... to why even make this decision? Why even check this box? Why even evaluate how you're loving others? And I don't know if you caught it earlier, but in, in verse 35, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this love, we're known as Christ's disciples. And through that, we offer hope. Through that, we're released from pain, from hurt, from frustration, and yet from regrets. We are marked by Jesus' love for us and our love for others. So we ask the question. That's why we ask the question. Yeah, sure, it's going to keep us on track with making better decisions it's going to keep us on track with healthier relationships. But if at the end of it all, I'm known as a disciple of Christ, then man, there's going to be no regrets there. Amen? Let me pray for us. And then we're going to take communion together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that we have just access to teaching that is just so rich, teaching that is so applicable to, to where we're at thousands of years later. God, we acknowledge that the reason for that is because you are a faithful, steadfast, loving God, and your love doesn't change. So your word doesn't change. Your teachings don't change. God, and as much as we need to receive this word of encouragement, we know that we haven't changed either. But yet you continue to meet us where we're at. You continue to, to redeem our hearts. And for that, God, we're grateful. God, even, even, teaching this more, even teaching this morning, words come to mind of how I need to love better. People come to mind of who I need to love better. 
God, I pray that um, those here this morning that are having the same thoughts, that your spirit empowers them. Um, fill us with, with this richness. Fill us with this wisdom that we've received. And help us go and leave and love better, God. More like your son Jesus loved. We pray these things in his mighty, mighty name. Amen.